You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So welcome to Thrive. We're in a series called Fearful Faith during the season called Lent. Lent for the lengthening of days. I know it's kind of, I just grew up with going to Lent and didn't understand where that word comes from, but it's the lengthening of days, the days that come before Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and the 40 days that appear before that uh, was set aside in uh, the early church um, as a time of reflection and renewal to focus on the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the 40 days he was in the wilderness tempted without food. We don't have to go without food and water ourselves. I guess he had water probably, but no food. So he was fasting and he was tempted for 40 days. And so we use this season to do that. And our series is called Fearful Faith. And you might wonder, how does fear and faith fit together? A lot of people think faith and fear should be the opposites. They're not. You know, um, as we brought up for the first commandment a couple weeks back, uh, the, one of the explanations Martin Luther used uh, for that commandment is we are to fear and love God so that, right, we put no one else above God. Um, fear, awesome, reverence, respect, honor, that's a part of what faith can be about. And sometimes that's missing today. We almost got a too chummy of a relationship with God, as if we and God are like this, and we are, but not on the basis of we're so naturally inclined to be in this position. Okay? And so in this series, we're exploring the Ten Commandments, yes, not in ten weeks, but in seven. So it's kind of, <laughs> so we've combined some, but today we're on the commandment of Exodus 20, verse 12, you shall not murder. It's pretty straightforward, right? Pretty easy. Anybody, you know, uh, I guess we could just say, okay, I haven't killed anybody lately, so I'm doing good on this one. Not so fast, Jesus would say. It's amazing how he speaks about God's reverence for, well, God's desire for life, for human thriving, <laughs> for human flourishing. From the beginning in the garden when he got down on his hands and knees, according to Genesis 2, and breathed into Adam the breath of life. Throughout the times where the first, you know, when Cain and Abel were at, you know, and Cain kills Abel and how the blood of Abel cries out. God has such a compassion, such a desire, such a passion for life and the fullness of what he has given. Um, Jesus says it's not just about you haven't killed anybody lately, okay? In fact, in the, his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, uh-uh, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, oops, will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, I've said a lot worse than that, will be liable to the hell of fire. Ooh. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden now, 
we're in some deep water here, and I'm not swimming too well in it. Um, in 1958, one of, uh, a, a scholar published an article kind of critiquing C.S. Lewis and his version of Christianity. And among the criticisms that this scholar made of C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know who he is. He wrote the Screwtape Letters. He wrote Mere Christianity, the Chronicles of Narnia, things like that. A scholar at Oxford and Cambridge. He, um, this, he accused C.S. Lewis of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis responded to that critique, and he said this, and to, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this, that passage with tranquil pleasure. Make sense? It's hard to read these passages in the Sermon on the Mount because they're very convicting. They take away a lot of my self-justifications, my validations. All of a sudden, um, when I would rather wish ill of anyone in any form, hate, um, boy, I'll tell you, how many times am I breaking this commandment when I'm on the road in southwest Florida? If you ha have you seen, uh, you, you wait. During the week, you will see we've got an extra half million people down here right now. And everybody's from somewhere else, and they don't know how to drive by our rules. Oh, see? All of a sudden, you're probably breaking that commandment in this direction, right? I know. I know. It's, that's the thing about it. It's not like... I can stand here and go like, yeah, this one, no problem. I've, I'm, not, I, I'm good with this one. Not at all. Jesus is taking a sledgehammer to our sense of self-righteousness. We so cheapen human life with the way that we treat each other. You know, whatever your group is, the in-group, the out-group, it's amazing what we can say about them. The tribalism that we have seen, the nationalism that we have seen, it's so easy. I can even talk about sanct the sanctity of life at the same time demonizing those who disagree with me. And I'm violating this commandment. Ouch. <laughs> I, you know, it's tough. And, you know, John writes in his first letter something that talks about this, too. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have found, uh, and this commandment we have found from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I could settle on the Sermon on the Mount as a passage, or on 1 John, I think, to talk in more of the fullness of what this commandment is all about from Exodus. But instead, we're going to be exploring today um, a very subversive, yeah, a very um, revolutionary word from Jesus in what you probably have heard before. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? Okay. Now, the, as we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have to realize the context. <laughs> the context, in a sense, is a lot like ours 
um, high racial tensions, huge issues of identity politics and nationalism going on across the Roman world. And Jesus speaks of this parable in the midst of all this turmoil and controversy in his society as well as the world. Israel was hoping to be rid of those Rom Roman occupiers. Israel wanted their freedom. Israel wanted to set things right. And Israel thought they were the in-group. And Jesus doesn't talk about just being nice to nice people here. He is being subversive to all our sense of who we think we are. So today, what we're going to do in this parable is look at these three uh, points. What I call our self-sealing logic, actually it comes from somebody else as well. Um, and then a life-giving compassion, and thirdly, the grace to change. Let's read the parable. By the way, you can follow along in this parable um, and in all this message um, on the U version of the Bible app. And underneath it, there should be notes under events. And um, you can get to that and kind of take notes along the way as well. But we're reading now from Luke chapter 10. And behold, the lawyer stood up to be put up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go. And do likewise. Jesus is undermining what I call, or what actually somebody else has called, our self-sealing logic. He enters a discussion with a lawyer, and boy, that's just the first problem right there, right? Now, don't think this is an attorney at law in our normal sense. This is even worse. This is a theologian. <laughs> yes. This man is an expert in the Torah. And notice in the text it said he is trying to put him to the test. He's not coming to Jesus for answers. He's coming to Jesus for validation. He's coming to Jesus to prove him right already. Boy, that's always a problem. But it's prevalent in our self-sealing logic. And he asks a question, which itself has a contradiction in it but he doesn't see it. What must I 
do to inherit eternal life. Now, um, recently I received an inheritance and I did nothing to deserve it. My mother passed away this fall and we got an inheritance, right? What did I do to, to get the inheritance? I, I did not, you know, do anything nefarious, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, nothing, right? So the question is, is it a gift or is it a paycheck? Is it a merit or is it grace? Which one is it? This man is confused, but he's basically already showing how he has seen the law and seen his role in it, and he is on a treadmill of trying to prove himself, validate himself, justify himself. In fact, the text says that's what happens next. He tries to justify himself when he answers correctly, clinically, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He needs to now try to justify himself by minimizing some aspect of the law. Make it doable. Make it manageable. Make it something less than because that way I can take a step here and a step there, 12 steps to a better me. Look at how much better I am than everyone else or at least those people. And in so doing, he's already breaking the law, trying to keep it. Isn't that amazing? You try to keep the law, you break the law. You try to justify yourself, then you're pushing other people out of the way. You're blaming somebody, you're doing something to say that you must be more worthy. Um, we tend to do that. We have a very, have you ever talked to someone probably too often? Um, especially if you try to have a conversation on Facebook. Have you ever had a, you know what I mean by that? Somebody posts something and you're going like, oh my goodness, I need, that isn't quite right. And so you kind of try to say, hey, I think that post is not the best. And then what do you get back? You know, you're going to get trolled for a while probably in some form or whatever. And you just go like, oh my gosh, why did I even try? Because there's such a self-sealing circular reasoning. There is no way to break into that. Uh, Chris Argris talks about this. He calls it self-sealing logic. He says, virtually every dominant culture, coalition in every organization has a sacred self-sealing model. It represents the most sacred of common belief patterns because it justifies the present behavior of the most powerful coalition. It justifies the current equilibrium and limits change to incremental rather than transformational efforts. Now, he's using this in terms of leading organizations through change, but you can see this both on a world level, national level, community level, um, church level in various forms, dominant coalitions. And you might say, I'm not part of a dominant coalition. Well, we all try to find our tribe. And when we are trying to find our tribe, we always try to find someone who agrees with us. That's what our tribe is. It's the people who agree with me. And then all of a sudden, we have our own self-sealing logic within that tribe. So for this lawyer or this uh, expert in the Torah, his self-sealing logic is uh, we're like this with God because God chose us, which was true. But we're like this with God, too, because we are so good at keeping the commandments. And we're like this with God because we do love God and love our neighbors as ourselves as long as the neighbor is somebody just like me.
What is some of our self-sealing logic? I could really step in it right now, couldn't I? You know? So often, I think our society justifies the level of violence that we have because that's the price of freedom. Or how we limit who our neighbor is to those who are like us or with us or part of our nation or whatever. I don't see any of those boundaries. In fact, Jesus is going to break through all those boundaries in this parable. And he tells this parable of a man who fell among the thieves to break through such self-sealing logic that we've just seen. And he does it by showing instead a life-giving compassion in this parable. And Jesus, by the way, is a master storyteller. Oh, this is our second point, by the way, Hugo. So are you there? Yeah. OK, thank you. OK. I know it's, it didn't lead into it too well, so OK. I know. Jesus is a master storyteller. Uh, he is so profound and so short in this story. It's not like takes up two or three pages by any means, but every word is just precise. So you've probably heard this story before. Um, a man is robbed, stripped, and left for half dead. Do you know what that means? In the Middle East at that time, you knew who somebody was and what community they were a part of by the way they talked, this man is unconscious. So you can't understand by his accent where he comes from and the way he looked and what he dressed like. But his clothes are taken away. All you know in this story is there is a human being left for dead. That's all you need to know. That's all that really needs to be known. And I think Jesus is trying to have you identify already in this story with, and who's going to be a neighbor to this man? Who's going to care about him? So a priest comes by first. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho because the word is down, and that's exactly what happens. Jericho is the lowest um, city, I think, the lowest inhabited city in the world. Um, it's below sea level towards the Dead Sea, the lowest spot in the world. And Jerusalem was from a you know, somewhat higher hill or mountain. So he travels down as after he, the assumption is he has just served his time at the temple and serving the Lord and doing all the sacrifices, etc. And he's traveling down. And he sees this man. And he basically walks by. No explanation is given of why he did this. There's no reason Jesus, and there is really no justification for why he walked by. He just did. He wasn't going up to Jerusalem where if he touched a dead corpse, he would then not be able to serve. There is no justification, but he just walks by and leaves. And then next comes a Levite. A little lower rank, but still someone who served at the temple walks by and leaves. And at this point in time, you have to also realize that everything that they had done at the temple courts in their service to the Lord seems to be a moot point when it comes to human life at this point. 
And I think Jesus is making the case that the prophet Hosea and other prophets had made about Israel, where Hosea says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And there's even a deeper indictment when you study this parable just a little more. You see the cadence of how the robbers came. They robbed him and they left. And then the priest comes, sees, stops, and leaves. And the Levite the same, that the cadence of the three, nothing breaks the pattern. And Jesus is implying that, hey, the criminals might have done the dirty work, but you're co-conspirators in this man's life or death situation by doing nothing. And then finally, someone comes and breaks the pattern. And of all the people that Jesus could have chosen that day and age, he chooses the most despised, least loved people group ever, the Samaritans. Samaritans were considered heretics by the Orthodox Jews of his day. Half-breeds who worshipped God but at Mount Gerizim, not at the right place, Jerusalem. And who were considered, um, basically even by law-abiding citizens of Israel, these individuals were considered almost subhuman people not to, to be avoided, to be left alone, to stay away from. By the way, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. Maybe in that day and age, someone would say, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. That's the shocker in this story. The Samaritan actually breaks the flow in the parable. If you see what he does, he comes. He doesn't just stop. He looks intently. He has compassion on this man. He brings healing. He gives of himself. He places the man on his own donkey. He walks in front of him. He cares for him in the inn. And he even pays for the stranger in advance. That is compassion. And compassion is the word that matters the most in this text. It's the word in Greek called splachnizomai, which is just this weird word for compassion. We don't use, well, we do. Have you ever had a gut reaction to a situation where you just go, oh, that hurts so much? That's what the word means. That this Samaritan, oh, just from the gut check, said something's got to be done about this. Compassion is what breaks through all the rules and regulations and situations. There, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of compassion. When someone has compassion, they don't care. They're going to do whatever it takes. That's what this word is all about. That's what breaks through. It's not about who's right or wrong. It's not whether, well, is this person part of my group or not part of my group? Is this person legal or illegal? Did they do something wrong to deserve? You know, none of those questions matter. When you have compassion, you're going to help no matter what. You're going to break through all of that. And in that sense, guess what? You're going to be a little more like God. 
You see, the grace that changes everything in this parable is the fact that Jesus is moving us to a point of realizing what's really going on here. You can almost hear Jesus saying to this expert in the Torah, think deeply right now, my son. I'm having compassion on you. You don't realize the shape that you are actually in. You think you are so good and so able, but you are the one who is beaten and stripped and left for dead along the side of the road. You're not the Samaritan. You're not the priest. You're not the Levite. You are the man who needs mercy shown to him. I don't know if you realize this. No, Jesus never calls the man, the Samaritan, a good Samaritan. That's what we've imported into this text. He's just called a Samaritan, and I think for good reason. Um, imagine this, and I've used this illustration before. Imagine in the 1880s, a, a member of maybe the Cherokee Nation out in uh, the territory of Oklahoma um, comes along down a trail on his horse and finds a pioneer woman wounded and left for dead on the side of the road. Well, the trail. And this Cherokee picks her up, places her on his horse, and takes her to the nearest fort, where they finally open the doors, and he walks this woman in and tries to care for her. What are the people in the fort going to think? What are they going to think? It's called guilty by association. They would assume somehow this Cherokee did this. And he would be risking his life to take her in and save her. You know, Jesus was called many names during his lifetime, many of them not so uh, wonderful. He was called, um, he was called a, um, <laughs> a blasphemer, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was called even uh, Beelzebub, you know, the prince of demons. That's how he's doing it. And he was even, you will find it in the Gospels, Given the racial slur, because they couldn't think of anything worse to say, people called him a Samaritan. They called him a Samaritan. Jesus is the one who risks his life for you, who comes into this world and is guilty by the association with us. We assumed the worst of him. Jesus knew what he was doing when he took that risk and took that chance. His death, by the way, is not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It is his act of self-giving and compassion. In fact, the word spongnizomai, that Greek word, is used of Jesus time and again, of how he looked over at the crowds and he had compassion on them. His guts went out to them because he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion and healed the leper and touched him. Again and again, this is the characteristic of God, who even in the Old Testament, it says time and again, the Lord is 
slow to anger and abounding in love and compassion. That is who our God is. And he takes such great risks, he gives up everything to have you, to bring life to you. Jesus is the only one who has ever kept the commandment, you shall not murder. And he did it by being murdered. Isn't that amazing? That is who your God is. That is who God is. The one who dies in your place and does everything to rescue you, to heal you, to bring you back, to bring you to himself. And that is the only thing that breaks through our self-sealing logic. Compassion. So I guess the question comes to all of us, how else but can we respond to others with such compassion that we don't keep trying to figure out protocols and rules in order to keep things nice and safe for ourselves, but that we will allow ourselves to be interrupted. By the way, did you notice in the text it said that the priest, by chance, they came by the same road. Isn't that the way it usually happens in our life? It's not that we've planned all these great things that we're going to do, but it's the interruptions and the chance encounters when you meet someone and you need to do something about it. And you say, that's enough. I'm going to take care. You have compassion. So I guess two questions that are hard to ask, but I think we can ask them now, knowing that we're not trying to justify ourselves. We're not trying to make ourselves look good. We don't need to do any virtue signaling where we look at how virtuous I am. We don't need to find validation in how good we are. We've got a Savior who has called us and loved us with an everlasting love and done everything for us. So we can ask that question. Whom are you avoiding so you don't have to care? Who do I want to stay away from so I don't have to, like, by chance, have to do something? And then the second question is, how am I giving life? How am I going to give life rather than simply try to fulfill this law by minimally making it nice and simple, well, I didn't kill anybody today, into how am I giving life today? How am I reflecting the God who has loved me, who has given me life, who has given my all. That, I think, is fearful faith. Will you pray with me? And today we have a number of prayers um, of members in our church in this last week that are you know, facing some difficulty. And um, uh, Michaelin Grisky is hospitalized this morning. She fell last night and was... Um, a little dizzy and stuff, and so she's there hopefully just for observation and for the fact that it might just be dehydration or something. Um, but Danielle Reese, one of our uh, students and, uh, who graduated and now works here in town, um, her father died a couple of months ago from a heart attack, and now her sister, I think age 19, passed away suddenly with no explanation, no understanding right now, they'll try to figure that out in the future. And so she's grieving with her family up in Orlando. And then Sharon Gallup, um, 
uh, member of ours um, who cooked that, uh, helped cook that meal that we had on Thursday night, and it is in the ICU at Gulf Coast Town Center with uh, a bad infection and some possible other issues that we're not quite sure that are trying to figure all that stuff out. Um, so let's be praying for those as well as uh, for Penn State, their week. Matt, you're going to have a good one, and just pray that you're all safe and just really uh, go back to that snow and cold rejoicing somehow, <laughs> but really strengthen in your faith and just have encouraged us as well with what you're doing and modeling compassion. Um, you'll see some of the devastation around here. It, it, it's, we're not even close to it's going to take three to five years, I think, to recover from just that one hurricane. Um, but thank you for being here. And uh, let's pray. Lord God, this day is yours. We are amazed at your goodness and grace in our lives and the fact that you have shown us such compassion, that you've done what <laughs> we couldn't even ask you to do it like the man who was stripped and robbed left for dead along the side of the road. We didn't even ask, but you came, Lord Jesus. Father, you love this world so much you gave your son so that through him you would save us. And we thank you, Lord, for such great compassion that we see through this time of the year, through your death and resurrection. We pray, Lord, we would move, be moved to be a church of such compassion to everyone who comes as, where, as well as those in our neighborhood and community by chance that we pass that you give us opportunities to show your compassion and love, Lord God. I pray that um, you would grow us in fearful faith. Lord, we lift up to you and pray for your healing upon Mike Lynn Grisky and Sharon Gallup. We pray, Lord, you do what only you can do. Doctors and nurses and technicians and all, Lord, we can aid life, but you can give life, and you have given them life. We want you to be glorified in these situations. We want you to show such compassion to us, too, because we love these people, and we know you love them even more. We lift up to you, Danielle, and Lord, we just grieve with her now. Two, uh, two people in her family, her sister, whom she was close to, her father, Lord, both, Lord, now, um, just show mercy and grace to her and help her to be connected to many, many more people, to be encouraged and to be lifted up as part of the body of Christ. Lord, uh, we just pray for your, an extra measure of your Holy Spirit upon her to give her that comfort and peace. We thank you, Lord, for our, um, our support dinner. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry that we have in this community as well as on the campus of FGCU. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, fellow Christians like these uh, disciples uh, from Penn State University to be here, Lord, to take their time, to have raised money, to take all of their effort to just be here to help serve us, Lord, in this community. Bless their week. Fill them, Lord, with your joy. May they see, Lord, your goodness in every day that they can touch lives for you, Jesus. And, Lord... You know, we're going to come to you as those who need you so much. When we receive the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, Lord, and you give of yourself to heal us, to, to 
dwell with us, to be with us, Lord Jesus, that you want to be so close to us, no one could be closer. We are amazed at that, but we ought to know, Lord, we are not worthy, not just this commandment on life, but everyone, Lord. We have not loved you, O Lord, our God, with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, and we deserve not your, <laughs> not your mercy, but your justice. And yet, Lord, we come truly sorry for our sins. We confess them to you and know that uh, those who confess their sins, you are faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for that. Prepare, O oh Lord, not only our hearts to be open to you to receive um, your supper, but, O oh Lord, that we would respond with compassion and grace and giving of of our tithes and offerings for the sake of your kingdom and your work to show compassion to others through Thrive and through many other ministries. All these things we lift up to you this day, confident you hear us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>